Good morning. My name is Phil Warners. I'm an elder at this church. And today's a big day. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But there's a something else that you probably ought to know uh, besides the fact that I'm still sporting my COVID haircut. In my other life, I'm a school teacher. I uh, deal with sixth graders. You guys don't scare me. And so if, in fact, you get a little sleepy or a little tired or you appear disinterested, it doesn't bother me because I've seen it before. <laughs> but if you start shooting paper wads at each other, you're going to Van Poolen's office, I'm telling you. <laughs> so today is a big day. It's a big deal. There's more than seven people in here at one time on a Sunday morning. But I want to remind you that that's not what makes today a big deal. Because the church has been a church for a long time. And it will continue to be that way. Our Sunday morning gathering is simply one manifestation of Jesus at work in our world. And so while we can come here, while we can gain strength, while we can cheer each other on in our journeys, let's not see Sunday morning gathering as the pinnacle to all things good. The other thing I... I feel like I want to mention this morning, and Steve and Rod have already talked about it, is just all of this social unrest that we're experiencing as a nation. Individual rights, volatile emotions, black lives matter. Preborn lives matter. All lives matter. It all gets very confusing. We're trying to figure out what's the right thing to say. We're trying to figure out not to say the wrong thing. It's just hard to understand. On the one hand, it's very confusing. And that's the simplified version of it. But there just seems to be no quintessential answer. Where everybody sits up and says, oh, I get it. Thanks. And once we figure all this out, I'd really like to figure out the purpose of emotional support animals on airplanes. That one still got me confused. But let's remember a couple of things as we start. When Jesus entered this world, 
The world that he knew was in complete turmoil too. So this is not new to Jesus. When he showed up, the Romans had taken over the Holy Land. And they were ruling with an iron fist. And there was political unrest, and there was chaos, and there was hatred. And that's the world Jesus stepped into. In reaction, of course, there were the zealots who burned and looted and vandalized and killed in subversive ways, all in an effort to disrupt this Roman world. So what did Jesus do? He made one of them his disciples. And then there were the turncoats, right? The Jewish people who ended up working for the Roman government. And all of a sudden, they were hated by their own people. So what does Jesus do? Chooses this tax collector and makes him one of his disciples. And then there were the marginalized, the fishermen barely eking out a living. So he threw a few of those guys in, too, to be his disciples. We're all called to be the disciples of Jesus regardless of the times that we find ourselves in. And so, I want to reflect on that just for a little bit and then move on. Because back then, as it is today, we're thinking, how can this ever be solved? But we have God's word. And there's going to be a day when all of God's children and those that refuse to believe will have to take a knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the meantime, as Rod mentioned, what's our call to action? Well, that's here too. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, patience, Bear with each other and forgive one another whatever grievances you may have against one another. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Isn't that what the world wants right now? Perfect unity. And the only answer is the love and kindness that Jesus has already showed us. And that the Holy Spirit is willing to offer us right now. That's why I'm here today. That's why I have to worship. Because I can't do it on my own. 
But we who know Jesus know that we have a hope and a future that is not mitigated by circumstances and emotions. That's why I need to worship. But I want to start with a prayer. And so would you just close your eyes a moment and join me. God, as we sit at the edge of these perilous times, forgive me for the times when I've tried to justify myself in light of what's going on. Forgive me for my silence, my apathy, when others are in need and suffering. Forgive me when I allow circumstances and media to form my opinions and I take my eyes off of you and your ultimate superiority. Allow me to be an agent of change. Allow me to be an agent of bringing heaven to earth, of being your representative, <laughs> even in the United States of America. Amen. So last week, we started a series here at Crossroads about the Holy Spirit. And uh, Rod kicked us off with that whole beautiful picture of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. If you haven't seen that, I think it's still available on live stream. Am I right, RJ? Take a peek at that. Um, because what I have to offer today uh, follows directly from that. God in three persons, blessed trinity. I remember that when I was a kid trying to come to grips with this notion of the trinity. Um, I had a Sunday school teacher, I remember. She said, oh, it's just like an egg. Because you've got the yolk, you've got the egg white, and you've got the shell. And without any one of those three, you don't really have an egg. And that made sense to me for about five minutes. Until I realized that before you take in your egg, you throw the shell away. And then when I saw my mom separating the egg yolks from the egg whites, that whole metaphor was shot to smack. So that couldn't be it. And so for a long time, I kind of adopted the idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the other guy. I'm not going to think about God the other guy. God the Father made sense to me. I was raised in a home with a loving father that I admired and loved. Okay, I get the God the Father part. God the Son. Well, yeah, I understand relationship between father and son, and we obviously had Jesus. He was the Son of God. So what about God the Holy Spirit? That was tough. 
But my favorite babysitter, Marie, who lived down the street, she went to St. Stephen's Church. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Ghost. That's scarier. I had a hard time with that. But I want to remind us of a few things today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has always been and will always be. Now, in case you get misguided by Rodvin Salkama, the Holy Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. He had been here before time with God the Father, with God the Son. In fact, we can trace back the Spirit, Holy Spirit through so many instances of the Old Testament. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And what's the next verse? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Exodus 3, the burning bush. Moses shows up and we get that same imagery of fire. And the voice of God comes out of that bush. Numbers, chapter 14, Joshua and Caleb it says in that chapter that they had a different spirit than the others. Couple more instances. I love this one. So I'm going to read it. Joshua, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 13, 24 and 25 says this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord, be, Lord began to stir him. And you can almost hear that movie music playing in the background like something's coming. Spirit's always at work. One that's caught my attention for a little while, though, shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You can look at it, and in a little while we're going to uh, read another section of this book. But 1 Samuel 16 is the story, if you recall, of uh, David being anointed as the next king of Israel uh, by Samuel. And he comes to the house of Jesse, and Jesse's sons all prayed in front of Samuel, and God keeps reminding Samuel, no, not this one, no, not this one. Don't you have any more kids? Oh, yeah, there's one left, but he's out tending the sheep. He's just a boy. Well, bring him in here. And God says to Samuel, this is the one. His name is David. So Samuel took the horn of oil, it says in chapter uh, 1 Sam 13, or 16, verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers and from that day on, Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So it got me to thinking. 
if the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power, and David is the only one that is ever mentioned as being a man after God's own heart, maybe we should stop and take a look at how does the Spirit, how did the Spirit work through David? And maybe, just maybe, if we take this in, we too uh, can be pursuing the very heart of God, even in these difficult times. I've got eight characteristics I want to run through very quickly of how I believe the Spirit impacted David. Right away, the next chapter is that great story of David and Goliath. I believe that the Spirit empowers us to do what is otherwise completely impossible. At this point, I was tempted to share a story or a for instance. And I don't want to do that. But I'm only guessing there have been times in your life when you see something impossible. And the Spirit of God enables you to just go forward. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, David is serving in Saul's court. And the harp of David, for whatever reason, upsets Saul. And I believe the Spirit protects us and tells us to run away when it's time to run away. Then we've got this several chapters of the Keystone Cops, right? The one David running away, Saul chasing him. David running here, Saul chasing him. And not once, but twice, David had the opportunity to depose of Saul and just kill him. Hey, after all, David had already been anointed. He's the next king of Israel. He knows it. Why doesn't he just get rid of Saul? Because number three, I believe that the Spirit gives us patience, endurance, perseverance to allow him to do things in his own time. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, the story of the ark coming back to Israel. Number four, I believe that the Spirit encourages us to do what is right. Even when our human nature 
would rather do what's different. So the Spirit empowers us to do what is impossible. The Spirit protects us and encourages us to leave. The Spirit gives us patience. The Spirit empowers us to do what is right. When the ark finally is returned, there's great rejoicing. And we read about David just dancing, not caring what anybody else thinks. Depending on your interpretation of the Bible, the PG version is that he danced in his underwear. The R-rated version is he was buck naked. But he's dancing before God. I think the Spirit allows us, encourages us to worship with reckless abandon. Now, a quick parenthesis here. I think there are some in Christian circles who believe that this is perhaps the most important aspect of the Holy Spirit. I think that limits him. I think instead, let's take it all into perspective of what he does. Number six, the Spirit offers us humility. I'm not going to do it now, but read 2 Samuel chapter 7 sometime. Would you please? God, through the prophet Nathan, blesses David and David's household. And rather than David patting himself on the back, even though he's at the height of his power, his prayer is one of great humility. So the Spirit allows us to be humble. But number eight, let's remember, the Spirit does not take away our free will. We still sin. David and Bathsheba's story is right there. The obvious mark that even though he is a man after God's own heart, he's still a sinner. And isn't it beautiful that God continues to pursue David and wants to work through him? That's good news for all of us. Because you're all a bunch of sinners. So am I. But number nine, there's one story that I want to highlight for the last few minutes we're together. And um, I'm going to ask my friend Julie Barrett to come and help me out. For those of you with your Bibles, would you take a moment uh, to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. All you, girl. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word, please feel free. Second Samuel chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Maker, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Maker, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, son of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. 2 Samuel 9. The word of God. I asked Julie to read that because I knew I'd stumble on the word Mephibosheth the more often I said it. The contrast between two characters in the same scene couldn't be greater. There's David, the king, at the height of his power, preeminent. There's Mephibosheth, the grandson of the former king. No social standing whatsoever. And to make matters worse, he can't walk, or at least he's crippled in both feet. But of course, some of you might know the other layer of this is that typically in those days, when a new king's family would take over, any of the existing relatives would be put to death. And so when Mephibosheth gets summoned to the king's palace, I'm only guessing it was with incredible fear and trembling that he enters into the king's presence. And yet David goes looking for this one descendant of Saul. Because he wants to show not his kindness, he wants to show God's kindness. That's in verse 3. Crippled in both feet. 
worthless, scum, a threat. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but one book I was reading said even the names that are mentioned here, maker, means sold as a slave. Lodibar, the place he was at, without pasture. The guy had nothing in life. And yet David encounters him and says, don't be afraid. And he gets his land restored. And this dead dog, Mephibosheth, is invited to eat at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Now, I'm a simple man. Sometimes I need a key point repeated and repeated. And that phrase, eat at the king's table like one of the king's sons, is in here in verse 7 and verse 10 and verse 11, verse 13. You don't think that's important? He got to eat at the king's table. All right. There's three conclusions I want to offer about the power of the Holy Spirit in this story. The first conclusion, David was a great guy. I mean, that's the Sunday school moralistic standing of, of this story. Wasn't that nice? It's almost like the Mr. Rogers gospel, right? Of being kind and friendly to your neighbor. Yep, that was David. But I'd like to assert that wasn't David. That was the Holy Spirit working through David. There's a difference. And if we walk away with this story, knowing that the Holy Spirit was at work in David, I think we still miss something. I think we miss this fact. I am Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth. I have nothing to offer my king. There's nothing I can do to make him accept me. My sin has made me an enemy of the king. I have no social standing. I have no pedigree worthy of his attention. There's nothing I can do to impress my king. By rights, I should be cast off and forgotten. But today, I've been invited to eat at the king's table. And so have you. Not just invited, but treated as one of his sons. This is the power of God and God alone.
It all starts with an understanding of who I am in the light of who God is. And then the miracle of the fact that I have decided to follow Jesus because the Holy Spirit is luring me in. And I'll even go as far as to say that all this crap we're facing today, none of it can be solved without the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a passage in Second Chronicles that often gets misquoted and pulled right out of context. It's that uh, appears when Solomon... David's son has just finished the temple. And there's this celebration. And God appears to Solomon and says these words. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. But what was the first thing? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Take on that sense of humility today. We're living in an age where Satan looks at the United States and thinks he has the upper hand. We know better. This is the time for the church to rise up. But it all starts with this sense of humility. We live in this time when my opinion has to be voiced. But I want, I'm not listening to you. I'm not patient for your perspective. I just want you to say what my opinion is and believe it. It's not humility. One of the popular Christianese phrases that we sometimes hear is that perhaps we need to just be Jesus to the world. Don't put that kind of pressure on yourselves. Nobody can be Jesus. Jesus was perfect. We aren't. Anytime we do something, there's sometimes those personal desire to pat ourselves on the back. But we can share the power offered to us by the Holy Spirit. I believe it all begins with humility. This humility should allow us to see 
that we each start out a whole lot more like Mephibosheth than we do like Jesus. But if we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us, we can be the agents of change in this world. Because only then will a strife-filled world understand that reconciliation is possible. Pray with me. God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we have this standing invitation to dine at your table with you. I'm thankful that this day and age, Satan thinks things are going his way. But we know that you are God, you are on the throne, and that your love endures forever. Steve reminded us this morning, this is the day that the Lord has made. So church, be thankful. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Because our king is on the throne. And there's no room for anybody else. In Jesus' name. Amen.